welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. This week, please join me in welcoming Monique Nelson. Monique Nelson is Chair and Chief Executive Officer of UWG, the country's longest standing multicultural marketing agency. She took the helm of the agency in May 2012 when founder and advertising pioneer Byron Lewis retired. Headquartered in Brooklyn with offices in Detroit, Atlanta, and Miami, UWG maintains a list of esteemed clients, including Ford Motor Company, Colgate Palmolive, The Home Depot, Bacardi US, Coca-Cola, and the US Marines, and many more. As one of the country's leading multicultural agencies, UWG services its clients with general market, Black, Hispanic, Asian, and LGBT marketing and advertising, digital and traditional advertising, consumer insight, public relations, consumer healthcare communications, and cultural fluency consulting. Ms. Nelson has expanded the agency's client list and has led her team in the development of several award-winning campaigns that show the wide range of the agency's expertise, as well as its ability to connect its clients with the growing and diverse cultures of today's marketplace. With today's minorities becoming the new majority, Ms. Nelson sees the role of multicultural agencies as even more important than when UWG was founded 50 years ago. While a one-size-fits-all marketing campaign might be efficient, it may not be effective, according to Ms. Nelson. Thus, her vision for UWG is to continue its history of providing the deep insight knowledge, and cultural nuance that keeps its clients connected to their consumers. Prior to joining UWG, Ms. Nelson was the global lead for entertainment marketing at Motorola, where she ensured that the technology giants' entertainment and music strategies and alliances lived up to their promise as results-driven strategic marketing weapons worldwide. Today, her leadership extends beyond her C-suite at UWG, Ms. Nelson contributes to many organizations and charities. She sits on the Advertising Week Global Board, Ad Week Diversity and Inclusion Council, the Eagle Academy Board, as well as the New York Advisory Board for the Posse Foundation, of which she is an alumni. She is a participant in the ANA's Alliance for Inclusive and Multicultural Marketing. Ms. Nelson continues to give back to her undergraduate alma mater by supporting the Vanderbilt on Madison Avenue internship program. She is also a member of the Brooklyn chapter of the Lynx Incorporated, an international not-for-profit corporation established in 1946, which is the nation's oldest and largest volunteer service organization of extraordinary women who are committed to enriching, sustaining, and ensuring the cultural and economic survival of African-Americans and other persons of African ancestry. Ms. Nelson has an MBA in international marketing and finance 
from DePaul University and a Bachelor of Science degree in Human and Organizational Development from Vanderbilt University. In 2016, she received United Way of New York City's Women's Leadership Council's Power of Women to Make a Difference Award. Her other distinguished honors include the Network Journal's 25 Influential Black Women Under 40, at ages 40 under 40, and the 2015 Advertising Working Mothers of the Year. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to just have a conversation with you about diversity and inclusion, knowing that you have been in this business for so long. And I just figured I'd start with a question to ask you about how you got to where you are today, your own kind of personal story. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I can do a quick, a quick and dirty version. Yeah. Um, born and raised Brooklyn, New York. Um, left Brooklyn and went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, really enjoyed that. And I went there on the Posse um, Foundation Scholarship, which is a diversity and inclusion scholarship program. Oh. So interestingly enough, you know, just a, that's a fast forward. So that's kind of, you know, where the, the journey kind of began. Um, left Vanderbilt and went to my first job, which was an international paper in Kakana, Wisconsin. And I lived in a suburb of Green Bay, if you can imagine. Um, it so you picked up and moved to Wisconsin. Correct. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. Came for like two seconds after graduating from, um, from Vanderbilt. And, you know, it was definitely one of those families that was like, you're off payroll. So figure it out. And, um, yeah, international paper offered me a job and they said at the time, there's two options. Uh, either you can pick somewhere desirable or you can pick somewhere undesirable. And if you work with us, you're pro- you will have to do an undesirable location at some point. And I decided to just go ahead and start there. So I went to, uh, Kakana. Wisconsin, which was like a specialty paper company within the international paper family. And um, it was an amazing experience. It really did solidify my love of marketing and sales. And uh, I was able to really learn more than I ever imagined in that environment. Worked on, you know, post-it notes, uh, worked on, you know, um, I sold the um, paper around reams of paper, ream wrap. I sold uh, the peanut butter cup holder for, for Reese's peanut butter cups. Uh, so as a, as a first, as a entry level salesperson, you were what they would call the throwaway salesperson. So every piece of paper I sold eventually got thrown away. So that was a really interesting way to kind of cut your teeth in marketing and um, understand the nuance of sales. And uh, that opportunity led me to Chicago. And I then ended up moving in 1999 to um, Motorola. And I took a global brand strategy role there. And that was, as you can imagine, a phenomenal moment to be in technology and certainly in mobile technology. Uh, I can honestly say I was probably, you know, we were there in the time when folks were talking about, you know, everybody's going to have one of these. And I'll be brutally honest, I didn't really believe them. I mean, at the time, right? Like you had the big micro tap. Like right. putting a shoe to your face. So <laughs> it was, um, you know, you just kind of couldn't quite imagine uh, where we are right now, but it was definitely on the road to that. And technology, actually, you know, that's where I really kind of built 
you know, my bones around, you know, strategy and marketing and really, you know, looking at this burgeoning, you know, market, right? And traveling the world, you know, spending a great deal of time in Asia, in Latin America. And, you know, one of my longest um, international stints was in Europe when I lived in Milan, really hard assignment, um, <laughs> for sure. Um, my closet, my for sure. forever <laughs> great. <laughs> and I always tell people my Milan um, uh, wardrobe keeps me honest with my size because I never ever want to not be able to wear those clothes. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So um, so then uh, came you know came back stateside and um, worked on Rocker, which was you know the first um, cell phone with with music in it. So it was really kind of the first, you know, iPhone in so many in so many iterations, and that was an awesome experience. And then um, point in my life where it was just like, hey, you know, you you got to go home at some point. Um, I'm an only child. Moved back to the city. Um, Motorola did not have a facility out here that was, you know, hosting marketing or otherwise. So it was time to move to something else. And um, I spent probably a. a a little under a year, you know, looking for an opportunity in New York and um, ended up interviewing at Uniworld in the fall of 2006 and fell in love with Byron Lewis, the founder. And I was, um, I joined them in February 2007. And I worked at Uniworld and um, in different departments, joined as kind of integrated marketing and brand entertainment, as well as being an account director and uh, just did a, a bunch of things within the agency, but most importantly, wanting to make sure that they were digital first. Because of course, having come from this world, I'm like, you know what? Having seen the rest of the world, marketing is no longer <laughs> going to live in these three places, right? TV, radio, and print. Right. This little thing that, you know, are, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> um, and more powerful is really where, you know, this industry is going. And uh, thankfully, you know, um, Byron really valued that, valued my vision around that. And uh, I started to, you know, you know, get more and more departments that I was, you know, working in. And in 2010, we had a real conversation about what my future would be with the organization. And in that conversation, it came up that I want to, you know, succeed him. And in order to succeed him, that means I had to buy the controlling stake of, uh, of Uniworld Group. And I made two phone calls. I called my parents and I asked them, what do you think about us buying an advertising agency? And they were like, sure, why not? And I made another phone call, which was to my boyfriend, who is now my husband. And I said, hey, what do you think if I buy an advertising agency? He said, sounds good to me. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Went back to Byron and said, all right, um, let's do it. And it took the, took the better part of a year and a half to uh, figure out how to do that because I had no idea how to buy an advertising agency. <laughs> so crash course in acquisition, um, you know, investments, you know, talking to, you know, no less than, you know, 300 meetings, right? Just what do I do? Who do I talk to? What, you know, how do I get this done? I mean, it was just, you know, consultants and bankers and lawyers and it was uh, quite a journey. But by May of 2012, we closed, and uh, I have now been the chair and CEO of Uniworld since um, May of 2012. Wow, what a great story. That is phenomenal. 
I think it gives everybody just a a trajectory for, you know, you can do what you want to do. And, you know, you just have to, even if you don't have experience with it, you just figure it out along the way and, and make it happen. So um, thanks for being, that's so inspirational. Uh, I'm assuming there were lots of mentors along the way that kind of helped you. Sounds like Byron may have been one, certainly to get you there. What was that experience like? Were there folks that kind of took you under their wing or? Absolutely. Every step of the way. I have a mentor who I've known since I was in college, um, a gentleman by the name of Michael Ainsley. He used to be the CEO of Sotheby's. And um, he was just clarifying, right? Like just one of those people that you're, you know, you, you can always look to and, and have a conversation with. You know, my parents were just, you know, insanely open to, you know, whatever I wanted, right? Whatever I wanted to try, whatever I wanted to, you know, do. So there's just something about that exposure and that ability to, honestly, to kind of fail. Yeah. Like, get out there and fail, pick yourself up, do, you know, try it again. You know, it wasn't really, you know, I I was a terrible artist. You know, and I remember saying, you know, I want to do this class. I want to take the ceramics class. You know, it wasn't very good. And I remember my mother going, let's channel your energy out. <laughs> <laughs> like, Find your strengths. <laughs> <laughs> Lean in. That's great. <laughs> so, then, you know, which is awesome. So, you know, I've always been able to kind of deal with truth. And, you know, and everywhere I went, I must say, I, you know, I was able to kind of find someone. Yeah. Who either I gravitated towards or was able to have an open relationship with. And kind of continue that through. And once I found out what sponsorship meant, then that was, you know, another kind of tool in the toolkit to understand that, you know, somebody has to advocate for you, you know, and be in that room and, you know, where you are not, you know, and one of the mantras, you know, one of my, my mentors gave me was, you know, decisions about you are made in rooms without you. And that ultimately means, you know, people have to recognize you, understand your strengths and where you can add value. Yes, powerful. Everywhere you go, that's that's what you got to find, and that's why DNI is so important. Yeah, because you need to be able to find that um, in people that look like you, mm-hmm. and people that could feel like you, and and that's critical. And I must say, everywhere I went, and especially at Motorola, I remember walking into my first day. David Gutman, big shout out to David. My first day, he gave me a list of three black women in that organization that he wanted me to reach out to. Wow. And it was wow. like, you know, along with my welcome pack was like, here's this woman, this woman, this woman. I recommend you reach out. And, you know, he was like, as a white male, I don't know what your experience, you know, needs right. to be. I want to give you that safety net now. Yeah. And I just, you know, again, it was, it just felt normal. So when you figured out that other people didn't get it, um, that's one of the things that um, that's really important about about what we do every day. Yeah, and I think you know when you start talking about community, he cre- he started to create that community for you. And I think a lot of companies today are trying to figure out, you know, how do I focus on inclusion and diversity? What does that look like? And I know Uniworld Global, being the longest-standing multicultural marketing firm in the country. You all have lots of experience about, 
you know, the challenges associated with inclusion and diversity along with, you know, solutions for, you know, creating it. And I know there's been kind of a renewed interest, uh, maybe I'd call it a deeper level of understanding and empathy that is being experienced around the world based on a lot of the Black experience and certainly other people of color as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges either, you know, and have they changed uh, over time? And, you know, in terms of what you're seeing now compared to maybe what was seen, you know, 10 or 15 years ago? I mean, yeah, I think like anything, it's, it's, it's been cyclical um, yeah. in that, you know, there's interest that ebbs and flows. But I think one of the things that's happening now is you've got a chasm around a demographic shift. And that demographic shift is not only numbers, but it's generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's happening, honestly, is that coveted, you know, 18 to 35 doesn't look anything like the 18 to 35 of 10 years ago, right? Or 15 years ago. Right. And that's, that's a significant heads up, right? And then in this moment, right, the, the gravity of that shift is now more obvious than I think it was in the past. We know these challenges have always been here. Right. Yeah. So the difference right now is the amplification of it, the fact that we're all locked in our houses still. That makes a difference. <laughs> it's clear. We're, yeah. still, we're still on lockdown. Yes. Um, and will be for the foreseeable future. You know, if we want to live, right? Because it's still very real and it's still very, you know, very, should be still very front of mind um, and top of mind. So, you know, what's happening now, which I, you know, am, you know, hopeful in in the regard of hopeful in people are coming with the right meaning and intention Mm -hmm. because that's, that's really going to make the difference. So the frenzy is great. Um, but we've got to have frenzy with order. Yes. And making sure that we're attacking the right challenges, right? Kind of, we look at it as a three A's model, right? We've got to acknowledge and assess. Then we have to do the appropriate actions. And then we have to be accountable. And, you know, the challenge right now is making sure that you're engaging people that want to do all three of those things and not just one. Yes, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, so that's that's where we are. We're we're seeing that we're we are, you know, in you know great client relationships that are looking at this as, yeah, we can't just jump in and out of this. Yeah, and yeah, we don't want to just do something fast, right? And there's a lot of sense of urgency right now, but this is a process. We're really talking about business transformation, right? Inclusion now has to be a part of your business plan and your business strategy. We're looking into the future. Your PE ratio depends on it. Absolutely. And I think sometimes uh, we forget how lengthy of a process it may be. I think everybody's looking for, I need to see results right away. But yet this could be like a three or you know five year, 10 year project for sure. Should be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I know you all have, you know, some unique opportunities in terms of helping build solutions 
Is there anything you can share in terms of, you know, how a company might get started or, you know, how they would engage in this area? Sure. I mean, first you want to, you know, just, you've got to do a scan of your organization, right? The first, none of, none of this is new because you would treat this like any other business initiative, right? If you were going to go into a new line of business or if you were going to acquire a business, I know enough now <laughs> that <laughs> if you were to, you know, really take your company in a new direction, you'd probably put a task force on it. Absolutely. You would do some research and kind of find out, well, what does that mean? And what will that mean for my business? How would that affect, you know, my bottom line? How is that going to affect my current environment? Will it change it? And if so, how? But if this was a life or death, you know, business pivot that you had to make in your organization, you would do all the steps. And this is the same thing, right? We have to figure out what does this mean for your business? Right. And that's, an, that, again, an assessment process. Let's yeah. figure out how it affects it, how it could, you know, help. What if we do something wrong? How does it hurt? Right. Let's, you know, all of you do that SWOT analysis. Right. And we would, you know, land on that, you know, and then we put strategies in place and tactics. Right. We would do all of that work to say, OK, if this is where we're going you know, we'd have that ridiculously long spreadsheet, <laughs> right? We'd have a project manager. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like we did for Y2K. I was, yeah. I was around for that. Yeah. And, you know, we put energy and everyone would have a part to play in terms of how this transformation is going to work, right? And how this new business is going to affect how we work every day. And if yeah. your human resource people are, are involved in how is this going to change the culture? Right. What does that mean for how we work? Right. And what does that mean for collaboration and high performing work teams and, you know, matrix systems, if that comes into play? So you would do that work. And then, of course, like with anything, you'd measure whether or not it worked or not or how it's progressing or what is working or what's not working. And if it's not working, you're going to go in and you're going to tweak it. You're not going to abandon it. You're going to tweak it. Yeah. So, and then, <laughs> and to that point in terms of, because I think there's a couple of things there with respect to the process. One of which I know I have been kind of vocal about is making sure that you include the community that you're talking about. Because I think sometimes people will say, well, I can, you know, I'll fix it and I'll let you know how I fixed it as opposed to actually incorporating connections with the community so that the community is actually involved in providing that. Absolutely. Um, That's where that task force comes into play, right? That comes with, those are the voices that are going to help you get there, right? They should be extensions of these advocacy groups. Yes. Right? That is, right? But that's, again, you know, if we're going to say we're going to go after, you know, people of color, well, I hope you have people of color figuring out how to go get them. Right. Yeah. No, (laughs) it would be helpful, (laughs) you know, especially, you know, I think a lot of times we expand our net and we forget to include folks in the community to help get the community. Right. So, you know, you don't want to show up at Howard university and, not be able to identify a community of people that people are, you know, that 
that are welcoming to your to your own company. So that's fantastic. Is there are there specific areas um, in terms of pro- the assessment that you would you would highlight in terms of you know how to get started? Sure. I mean, we're our organization is very data driven. So you know, some of the things that are really important to us would be um, you know things like your you know your numbers. You know, we do want to kind of understand where you are. I think there is, you know, something to be said about baselining, right? And and putting a, you know, putting a goal in place, right? And I'm not talking about numbers and, you know, counting people. You know, what are the goals? What are you trying to, uh, you know, achieve? So we would spend some time around your, your strategies, you know, and what are some of the things you're trying to achieve over the next 5, 10, 15 years? You know, we're, we're long, you know, long-term vision. We don't want to fix something for now. Um, so it would be a matter of, hey, this is, you know, we'd be more than happy to come in and really talk to you about what that strategy looks like. You know, we really do want to make it something that is part of what you would do every day, right? We don't want it to be that extra work, right? This shouldn't be your fourth shift job, right? We all have enough work. What we want to do is, you know, make the work that you're doing more now more inclusive, right? Let's make it part of the habitual stuff you're doing. Right. Let's let's not, you know, make it an extra thing. So that's, you know, that's kind of the way we approach it because we do want it to be sustainable. Right. So, you know, that early assessment time is important. And we spend quite a bit of time talking to senior management. Right. right. We, we do want to understand that commitment level. We do, again, want to understand how your organization works and does it, quite honestly. And, and why are some of these things not flowing? Because most leaders are like, I'm not trying to have an exclusive organization, right? And, and if they are, then this wouldn't matter to them, right? <laughs> yeah. but, if you, you know, but if you do care, then this is something that you're trying to figure out, well, what's, what's the challenge? And we want to go and identify, and we want to identify it in small pieces. You know, we can't eat the elephant. You know, you can only do it one bite at a time. And that is, you know, the way we try to work methodically to, to get you to your goal. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we, what we do. We, we, we see it as a holistic piece. You know, we really are uniquely positioned, we believe, to do inside and out, right? Because of our 51 years in knowing this consumer, right, which is also the person that works for you. Right. Um, you know, it really does give us that unique positioning of being able to diagnose what you need to do internally to make yourself a more inclusive culture internally with respect to your brand. But also, how does that translate into your outside, you know, world? And what does that mean um, as the demographics change, shift, taste, you know, and times um, evolve? That's a great point because I know in a lot of cases we there was a term we used to use eating our own dog food. <laughs> you know when you think about you know your internal branding in terms of how that culture is created and you know nurtured over time can have an extreme effect on what your brand looks like on the outside as people are out there carrying that ambassador for your company. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So how do 
employee resource groups or, you know, even allies fit into these kinds of challenges when you talk about making it part of your everyday? Because I think probably every employee resource group I know, they're all doing it as a third job. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's like there's a lot of work to be done and they rarely get recognition or pay or anything associated with it. Yeah, that's the part that needs to change. Yeah. That ERG should be on your evaluation. Yeah. Right? The work that you are contributing to that is adding to the contribution of your organization. And it shouldn't be. And if it is, it's the development job. Right? You should also be scored on the fact that that's something that you're willing to do in service to your organization. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not, you know, it should be part of how you're evaluated. It should be seen as a stretch assignment. Yeah. Right? Because it is real work. You just, absolutely. I remember, I was on the ERG at Motorola. I remember being the one going to the job fairs. Yeah. Right? In addition <laughs> to doing my job. During, right? You know on I mean? Saturdays, at night. And you Sundays know. at night, being at, you know, being at recruiting events and making sure that, yes, Motorola showed up like me. Yeah. Because it was important that Motorola show up like me at a Black Enterprise event. Yeah, definitely. Right? With other Black employees at Motorola so that they could say, yes, this is a place for you. Yes. Because look at our team. And I was honored and proud to do it. But no, it wasn't something that was an aside. It was absolutely my department knew I was going. They understood that it was something the organization wanted me to do. And yes, it counted for me, not against me. Yeah. Well, that's important because I think that's a that's a huge shift, certainly from the folks that I know of that are working in ERGs. I don't I, I mean, I think the subject is coming up more often, but it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next few years and how companies really provide some of that, you know, whether it be compensation, recognition, you know, at the very least for all that they they are doing. Because I know there's tons of folks over organizations making a difference. And, you know, they're, they're just doing it because they know it needs to be done and they love to do it. So. That's right. so, so then in terms of allies, so there's been a lot of dialogue. I think just even the fact that people are creating some safe spaces for vulnerability and conversation... I, I think you probably had uh, at least one with your your own oh, staff and employees. I literally just got off one. <laughs> and so, I mean, how important are those? And and you know, are they things that you know you're incorporating into you know the way you all do business? How does that work? Yeah. No. Um, I'm sorry, and I know that was part of the previous question too. So yeah, I should, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, allyship is, is critical and, and part of the safe space is to kind of continue that open dialogue and allowing people to express themselves as we go through this uncomfortable transition. This is stuff we've never talked about at work. We are now all of a sudden telling Black people, gay people, Hispanic, Asian, whatever you are, to now be vulnerable in a place that you were told forever to never show your emotions. Right. 
And now we have to create a space where that has to stay, right? You can't tell people to come out of their shell and then go psych, right? Like, we, we can't. <laughs> right. We just told every person of color to pour their heart out. Yeah. Right? Most places, at least the places that I, I've worked with. Yeah. So you can't stop now. You can't. I think there's that level of trust, right? Yes, that it has to be there. And I am finding that more and more allies are so engaged in that part because that's the that's where some that's where the community is gonna build. Right? Because that's where you're gonna hear the truth. Right. The truth is so important in this moment, and it doesn't mean an indictment, but it is a truth about this is still a challenge. No, it's not fixed yet. No, this is what I need from you. And that's really important. And we have to keep that part going. That's what's going to carry us through this is the fact that people will continue to be able to be honest and express themselves. And I mean, not everywhere all the time. That's why it's called the safe space. Right? <laughs> Our. <laughs> yeah. you know? Not at every meeting. <laughs> not every meeting, right? But it's the meeting that you can actually go and say, this is still a little messed up, right? Or somebody still hurt my feelings this week or whatever. Right. And, and how can I become a better, you know, a version of myself? And I'm finding organizations doing great work, um, you know, super proud of my partner um, at WPP, who's really been putting these, you know, micro learning sessions together. You know, and we've been, you know, happy to participate and put, you know, anti-racism, you know, training together and, you know, a place to talk about race and people learning a bit about where this all came from and that we can dismantle something that was, you know, a figment, right? A myth, right? Yeah. This is all built on a myth. So, you know, we have to go in and deconstruct that myth, but we got to know where it came from. But it's, you know, most of the time I'm seeing more allies, you know, showing up in that space, willing to lean in, which is the part that, again, I, I think was probably missing on so many levels the last go round, or, you know, it was there, but then it was lost somewhere in between. But we're kind of all in this together. And it's important that we all kind of understand where we came from so that we can do a real comprehensive fix. Yeah. And I, even with respect to, because I think everybody comes to this in a, from a little bit of a different place in terms of whether it be, you know, their own guilt about understanding, you know, just their own privilege. Maybe they weren't quite aware at how, of how privileged they were and how challenging it has been for people of color. I mean, where do you start with that? Because I think in some cases, there have been conversations about, you know, increasing levels of representation by, you know, lots of different companies. And certainly they can do it in a variety of ways, but it seems like maybe there's been a lot of focus on inclusion and diversity over the last, say, five years and we're still struggling to get representation. So I don't know. I think that was probably yeah. two different questions, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, this is again, and you know, you'll, you'll find me repetitive in that you can do stuff or you can be intentional. And the problem with, you know, just counting, which is what it sounds like, right? I'm just going to get more people. Your environment still sucks. Right. Sometimes part of the reason people aren't there is because they don't feel comfortable. 
right? So you can continue to march people through and they're going to walk in the front door and right out the back because it's not comfortable, right? Nobody's made any kind of accommodation. I got a question the other day that said, you know, what do you do when you're bringing the first one in, right? What if we are in all whatever environment? And actually, I, I went through this. I remember when I bought Uniworld, we, one of our offices was all black. I thought it was weird. I really did. I said, this is strange. <laughs> we should have <laughs> more points of view in this organization. I said, we, we need more perspectives, even though in this particular you know, assignment was, was an African-American assignment. I said, I don't want to only know how African-Americans feel about right. an African-American assignment because we live amongst the other people too. <laughs> like, this is weird. Yeah. And, um, and I remember getting pushed back because they're like, I don't understand. You know, it was, it's the same thing. And I remember hiring the first white guy and I spent a tremendous amount of time telling him he was going to integrate an office. You're the first white person to be here. I really don't know, but let me tell you the resources we're going to put in place <laughs> to ensure that you're not the last. Right. We want more other people in our organization and I need you to work. I need this to work. So we had to put stuff in place to make sure that the white guy felt good. Yeah. It's the same thing. Right. If you're going to do that and you know that your environment has never been inclusive, how are you expected to make it stick? You've got to put some other things in place. Right. You're just going to have to. And so you alluded to uh, some training and other things. Were, are those the types of things when we're talking about, like, you know, whether it be unconscious bias training or, or other things, are you thinking that those are items that should be kind of required or, or how does that uh, actually get executed? Sure. I think that should be part of everybody's onboarding. Right. If this is part of what you're doing, especially in the in the near to you know not foreseeable future, if that's what you're trying to do, I mean, what's happening is the fact that we need to get everybody up to speed as to what this feels like, looks like, and you know, I remember you know there was a time when training was inclusive of that. That part of you know your cultural indoctrination in an organization meant that you you know went through certain trainings and really in service to the values of the organization, right? That's what it should be is if, you know, and everybody's values are all, you know, very lofty and uh, aspirational, right? We serve the world. We're saving this. We're doing, you know, like, so they're always very big. And if that is the case, then that should be a part of how an organization onboards you. And those values should come through that onboarding. So, yes, I think training um, is a continual effort. And if this is part of what we call inclusive leadership, right, like everybody should be a part of being inclusive. And what are those skills? So our trainings are very skill-based, um, very much about building you up and upskilling you as a person to be able to see and understand what to do in a situation, right? We want to be situational too. 
um, and be very thoughtful. We don't believe in the preacher training. We don't like the click the button training. We really do want to make sure that it's applied to how you do your work every day and how that's going to improve how your teams work and ensure they're um, high performing and productive. So, you know, we, we believe training needs to be thoughtful in terms of how it's going to affect your team. And, you know, for some environments, you know, click the button works, but it usually doesn't work for stuff that's culture-based. Right. Yeah. So I'm good for click the button for, you know, a data entry or, you know, here's how you do <laughs> your expense report. <laughs> but that's really tough when it comes to how do I get a team to work effectively together that are on six different continents <laughs> and, you know, have, you know, multiple challenges around, you know, product delivery. Like that's not, click the button's not going to help that situation, but inclusion right. can. Yeah. That's a great, great point. Um, Cause I think when you think about culture and, you know, identity as a whole is such a, I mean, it is really the core of you. And so when you're, when you're moving around to different locations or corporations, it can be challenging. So when you're thinking about, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of casting a wider net to try to incorporate representation, but obviously there's a lot of focus on retention and development. And you spent some time talking about development and how people can move up within a company and it seems like every time I have a conversation, there is some sort of middle that happens and there's something going on in the middle of the organization where the top and the bottom think they're on the same page, but getting up through the organization seems to be more difficult. Ooh, the <laughs> frozen middle. <laughs> so oh. is, are there like strategies that, that companies can, can think about when, you know, like how do you break that? That ice there. <laughs> oh, that frozen middle, that career level, that hard center. Yes. Um, is, um, is, is, a very, is a very interesting phase. It is a total part of organizational dynamics. And we um, really believe that they deserve a whiff on, which is the what's in it for me. Absolutely. The whiff on is critical. You have to figure out how people who are sitting in, you know, the in-betwixt, in-between positions, right? Because they're not they're too big to be small, too small to be big, but they're, they're value, right? Like you've right. got to find value from them. And a lot of times that's the consternation there is because they're not being utilized, right? And not being rewarded or acknowledged for their work at that level, right? Because the senior people are getting paid, right? Let's... Yep. It is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the junior people are like, I'm so happy to be here. This is awesome. And these are the people that are doing the work. Yeah. Right. Either they're training the ones beneath them or they're giving it up to the ones above them. And you got to figure out how they get theirs. Yeah. And how do we cast, how do we reward them for being the conduits? Right. And that's really, you know, because the organization doesn't work without them. I mean, I, I was in I was in the workforce when they cut middle management out and you know what happened. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> like, uh, where did our productivity go? <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> ben, yeah. that you just let go? Like 20,000 of them? Right. So they have to have a reason to believe too. And sometimes those reasons are different. So we now have to align the fact that, yes, yeah, senior level, very clear. Junior level, usually very clear. But the middle is usually very kaluji. And you've got to start to give value and give reasons to believe so that people can then move the organization forward. And you can do that, but you've got to figure out what that whiffle is. And it yeah. may not be what you think it is. Could be time. Could be access. You know, could be education. And I'm assuming that that loops right back around to your assessment process. Yep. Got to find <laughs> out from the people. <laughs> <laughs> you got to talk to the people at some point. You got to talk to the people. Yes, yes, <laughs> that is awesome. I mean, I have truly enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for weeks on end, and you have all these nuggets and morsels <laughs> of wisdom. So, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And um, I look forward to continuing to watch Uniworld Global as you you are, in fact, leading and setting the stage all over the world for the standard on inclusion and diversity. So um, I thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing and your teams are doing. I know you're, you're massively busy and I so much appreciate the time that you spent. Thank you so much. And I love the fact that you have renamed us Uniworld Global. I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's who you are, right? <laughs> Did I say the name wrong? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just Uniworld Group, but I'll go oh, with Global. I like I'll Global. <laughs> I like Global, too. <laughs> I think you're already there, so, you know. What can I say? It's a, it was a Freudian slip maybe for you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you again, Monique. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. You guys are awesome. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.